such a meaningful prayer for the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It's a favorite Bible verse around here. It records that the early church was devoted to prayer. So there are times when we as Christians pray in solitude, and there are times when we pray together in our individual families. But today, I want to focus on those times when we pray together as a church for our church. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, I've identified four different prayers for the first century church. And in each one, in each one we see a specific request and a specific answer. And then in each instance, there is relevant application for us as the church in the 21st century. And after today, it's, it is my prayer that we will all be more intentional and more intense, more faithful and more frequent in our prayer for our church. Prayer number one comes from the first and second chapter of the book of Acts. It is a prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the very first prayer meeting took place on the day of Pentecost, which is the birthday of the church. 120 believers gathered in Jerusalem in an upper room, and they prayed consistent with the prophetic word of Jesus that they would be clothed with power from on high. And so they gathered to pray that prayer, to be clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says that they all joined together constantly in prayer. And then in Acts chapter 2, it records the answer to this prayer. God sent the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5 goes on to say that there were in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when these people heard the gospel for the first time, they asked in bewilderment, are not all these men speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? How are they able to communicate so powerfully with us? So 120 believers prayed constantly for the power of the Holy Spirit, and that prayer was answered. But I want to suggest that the Holy Spirit's power was not only demonstrated by people speaking in foreign languages that they had never studied and learned, that was merely a means to an end. The ultimate purpose of this manifestation of Holy Spirit power was the greater miracle of souls being saved, people being reached, discipled, baptized, and taught, and the Holy Spirit-empowered church today is still accomplishing that miracle. Now, as a church, we want to constantly pray that God will continue to bless this ministry 
with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Crossroads has consistently grown through the years, and while a few might say it has grown too much and it has gotten too big, I would point out that the church grew from 3,000 baptized and added to their number on a single day in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, to a great number that no man could count at the end of time, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Personally, I would never want to prefer that any church remain small because of the implication of that. To insist that the church should remain small is to limit the number of people who name Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and worship Him, and that puts us at cross-purposes with God, who's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Well, a couple of things here. I believe that the Holy Spirit's power is more evident in some places than in others. Now, I know that God is at work everywhere, but there are some places in which His presence seems particularly awesome. Now, many of you have testified that when you walk out after worship right here at Crossroads, you feel like you've been in the presence of God. You walk out feeling, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And I agree with you. I don't worship anywhere. Quite like I consistently worship right here in this room. And there are other places where the Holy Spirit's power is particularly evident. I also believe that the Holy Spirit's power is more evident in some people than in others. In the Old Testament, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. In the New Testament, we read that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. And why is it that when Billy Graham got up to preach, thousands filled the stadiums and listened attentively, and he extended an invitation and hundreds responded? Is it because Billy Graham is the greatest preacher you've ever heard, or that his messages had the best content, the most depth? I doubt it. I think that God anointed him as a preacher in our generation of an evangelistic message. Something happened when he preached Christ, and any other preacher could take the same message and preach it, and there wouldn't be nearly as much power. I know. I tried it. It doesn't work. There are two prerequisites for experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the life of our church. One of them is obedience to God's commands. In the Old Testament, Samson experienced Holy Spirit abandonment because of his womanizing and his disobedience. And the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul because he was proud and he was disobedient. And in David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he feared the loss of the Holy Spirit because of his sin with Bathsheba, and he prayed with desperation, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that the power of the Holy Spirit abides on those who walk in obedience. And the more people in our church who live righteously, 
the more the Holy Spirit will empower us. In context, Paul is talking about disobedience in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, when he says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. How do you put out the, the fire of the Holy Spirit in a believer? How do you put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in a church? Disobedience. Well, secondly, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is often dependent on the prayers of God's people. The disciples were in a prayer meeting when the Spirit filled the whole house. Every Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m., our worship leaders are in this room praying for our services. At 8 a.m., Sunday morning, a little group of men gather with me back in room 105 for prayer. You saw the slide. We're preparing for our Freedom Isn't Free weekend on November 10th and 11th. A number of our men are praying and fasting about that. Our elders begin their monthly meetings with 30 minutes of prayer by name for specific needs in our church family. Virtually every meeting that happens on this campus begins and ends with prayer. We conclude every weekend worship service with a prayer ministry at the front for anyone who desires it. Jesus said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father grant the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so, let's ask for our church, for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Prayer number two is in Acts chapter 4. It is a prayer for boldness. Acts chapter 4 records a prayer that was prayed after Peter and John had been arrested for preaching that Jesus is Lord. In chapter 4, verse 24, when the church heard this, it says, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, it's just true that we tend to pray more intentionally and passionately when we're threatened, when we're under pressure. We're like that little boy who was acting up in church, and his father threatened him with a spanking, but the boy just couldn't pull himself together. So the father just grabbed him up around the waist and carried him feet first right down the center aisle. The boy knew he was in trouble. As the father was about to go out the double doors, the boy pled with the congregation, pray for me. <laughs> he knew he was in trouble. But do you know what the church prayed for Peter and John? They did not pray for the threats to stop. Instead, they prayed for boldness and courage. Acts 4.29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And the answer came right on the heels of that in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Now, as a church, we want to pray for courage. We want to pray for boldness. In the United States, we're not yet arrested or imprisoned, but we are threatened with lawsuits. We are labeled as being somewhere between right-wing fundamentalists and politically incorrect. We're threatened with the loss of our tax-exempt status. 
we have to suffer media jibes and derision from pseudo-intellectuals. And so it's tempting just to to refer to sexual perversion as a personal struggle. Or instead of calling someone out as a sinner, maybe we should just say they're morally challenged. You know, it's tempting to dilute the truth because we want to be liked. We want to be well thought of. So pray for those of us who preach and teach that we will speak the Word of God with boldness. Here is the bullseye on the target for me, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. And we need to pray for boldness for one another. As we leave this worship center week after week, let's pray for our Christian teachers and administrators that they'll have the boldness to find some creative ways to influence students for Christ. And we need to pray for our Christian attorneys to have the boldness to speak up for what's right and true. And we need to pray for our physicians and medical personnel that they will use the respect that they receive from people to be a channel of God's grace and truth. And we need to pray for our influential community leaders to say with their lives and their lips what Peter and John said. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Fact is, all of us, all of us can have an impact. Prayer number three is a prayer for servants. In Acts chapter 6, we find the record of the ordination of seven men for special service. The church was experiencing growing pains. In Acts chapter 4, it says, There were 5,000 men, so we estimate that the church in Jerusalem by Acts chapter 4 had already grown to 20,000 people. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the church is large, and the church has many needs. And they have their own welfare program going. But some complained of favoritism. They were grumbling. And the problem was not ignored. It was addressed prayerfully. And the apostles determined that they needed to maintain their devotion to the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. And so they chose seven men who were known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they turned the responsibility over to them. It says the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. Acts 6.6. And the answer, the answer to their prayer came immediately as the church was blessed again with another surge of growth. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And the priests becoming obedient to the faith meant that they were leaving their livelihood in order to become Christ's followers. That had to be high impact. Now as a church... We should pray that that God would honor and reward the people who work behind the scenes in the life of the church. I could not give my attention to the ministry of the Word of God and prayer and leading the leaders if it were not for a dedicated staff and volunteers who oversee our finances. Folks, a $6.5 million budget takes a lot of oversight. Evaluating requests, interviewing people, distributing food and funds, paying bills, getting bids, negotiating with vendors, etc., etc. 
and then our facilities and staff, our facilities staff and volunteers are absolutely incredible. They're the mowing and the tending of the grounds, the cleaning of this building that is used hard week after week. And they do it with a great attitude. Someone has said, you let me meet the people who pay your bills and the people who clean up your building, and I will tell you about your church. Well, these folks at Crossroads are the greatest, but they need our prayers. And pray for the nursery workers and the children's department and our student ministries and our baptism attendants and our communion servers and our tech people who work with our sound and video and our greeters and our welcome team and our 242 leaders and hosts and on and on and on it goes. We've got all these servant-spirited people who need for us not to take them for granted but to be thankful for them, to pray for them, to encourage them and sometimes to join them. I want to challenge us as a church to renew ourselves in an effort to appreciate and to pray for the hundreds of servants in the life of this church, starting with our elders. One of the two shortest verses in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, pray continually. And a part of this posture of being in the spirit of prayer continually is to remember our servants. Prayer number four is prayer for the persecuted. Now up to this point, we've interpreted prayer for our church to mean prayer for crossroads. We want to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to operate in our church. We want to pray for boldness in the messages and in the witness of our people in the community throughout the week. And we want to pray prayers of thanksgiving and encouragement for those unsung heroes who faithfully and selflessly serve in our church. But finally, we want to be reminded that our church is not just the church in the Newburgh-Evansville area. Prayer for our church implicates us to pray for our brothers and sisters in the church far away. In Acts chapter 12, we have the imprisonment of Peter and the death of James. And it results in one of the most dramatic prayer meetings in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it was at about this time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now this is the second time that a high-profile Christian leader was martyred. Stephen, you remember, was stoned. James now beheaded by the Romans. And then in verse 3, we learn when Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, that is, the execution of James, he proceeded to seize Peter also. After arresting him, he put him in prison. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And that night, Peter is sleeping like a baby in his cell, even though he didn't know whether he was going to live or die the next day. And an angel woke him up and said, Get dressed, Peter. Let's get you out of here. And so Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Many people had gathered there, and they were praying. And Peter knocked on the door, and a servant girl named Rhoda went to the door, and she recognizes the voice of Peter on the other side, and she's so excited she doesn't bother to unlock the door. But she runs back and tells her Christian friends who were praying for Peter's release, he's at the door. 
get this now, they're praying for Peter's release. She reports that he's at the door. Their response, you're out of your mind. That's not possible. It must be his angel. It can't be Peter. We're praying for his release. Peter kept on knocking. Peter had to be thinking, well, I can get out of prison, but I can't break into a prayer meeting. When they finally opened the door, of course, they were astonished. Friends, we must be more attentive to prayer, not only for the church here, but for our church in the third world. They are our church as much as we are our church. Christians around the world are living with intense persecution in this generation, and when they suffer, we should all suffer with them, interceding for them in prayer. Franklin Graham recently wrote that the worst atrocities of persecution are presently happening in Mali. This is an area that is dominated by Islamists. It is also the place where Crossroads has just undertaken a major evangelistic initiative. In Zanzibar, North Africa, we have missionary partners working there that have been impacted by riots and persecution. You become a Christian in North Africa, you'll likely be cut off from your family and friends. You'll likely lose your job. You'll be beaten or worse. We saw the video. In India, thousands of Christians persecuted and martyred each year. Many of these are in the Lucknow area where Crossroads is fully supporting six new church planting evangelists. I want to draw a straight line between this church and the persecuted church in the world. We as a church are at the epicenter of where 21st century persecution is happening. And if there's any church in this country that ought to have a heart for the persecuted church, it is this church. It's estimated that 200 million Christians throughout the world live in daily fear of Islamic extremists and Hindu radicals and secret police and vigilantes suffering government repression or government discrimination. That's our church, our people who are suffering because of what they believe. And we must do what we can to assist Christian brothers and sisters whose faces we will never see this side, whose names we will never know on this side. Proverbs 31 verse 8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. At the very least, we can pray for these people under oppression, that they would remain faithful. And I want to ask you this morning, to own this verse of Scripture in Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Do you have this kind of heart capacity, this kind of heart ownership for the church? I know most of you do. I know some of you don't. You haven't been able to develop a real heart ownership for the church right under your nose, let alone 
the persecuted church in the third world. I've got to conclude. If I were sitting in the pew of this church today, and I love this church, and I realized the kind of influence that this church was having in the community and in the world, I would be praying for the Holy Spirit's power to continue to be released. I would be praying for boldness in the witness of the pastors and every member. I would be praying for the faithful servants who are the backbone of this ministry. I'd be praying for the protection of the elders and the leaders. The Apostle Paul wrote, Brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. Not everyone has joy when the church thrives. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters wherever they are in this world. Let me bring it on home. Folks, listen this morning. Do you need to raise your esteem for the church? Can you divorce yourself from the puny opinion of our culture? of the church in this generation. I'm telling you, the church is not optional where your salvation is concerned any more than Jesus is optional as your Savior and Lord. And all the organizations and clubs out there doing good works have borrowed compassion from the church or they've been launched by the church. And many of them are commendable. The Rotary, the Lions Club, the Kiwanis, the Heart Association, the United Way, the Red Cross, the Cancer Society, and all the rest who emphasize good works for the needy or the disabled or the sick or the under-resourced or you name it, just understand they are all secondary. The church of Jesus is primary. The church of Jesus Christ is the source. It is the original are you attached to the living body of Christ? Are you part of the bride of Christ? Are you fleshing out the living presence of the Son of God by being in Christ and in His church?